Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to pick it up from the very beginning because I hate, you know, kind of digging in right at the middle uh, and not giving the context. So let's let's take it from the beginning. Verse 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For before he uh, was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him who had promised, uh, excuse me, because she had judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them." And that's where we left off last week. And uh, if you didn't, uh, weren't here, whatever, you can go to our website. You can listen to the, to the message. But beginning here at verse 17 now, we pick it up. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now, Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son at that point. You recall that he had Ishmael. But Ishmael was born of the flesh. He was a work of the flesh. Isaac, on the other hand, was born of faith. And God's promise to bless Abraham's descendants was through Isaac, his son. Isaac was the avenue of God's promise. Now put yourself in Abraham's shoes. God's promised you. I mean, you're an old man. You're, you're, you're around 100 years old, and God's promised you that he's going to give you a son. And miraculously, he does. Your wife's you know, old, past childbearing age, and she delivers a son named Isaac. God's finally given you that promise. And then God tells you, to take that son, that that only avenue of of his promise, and go and offer him up as a sacrifice. Can you imagine how Abraham would have felt? It says here, how did Abraham, or it says that Abraham received him back from the dead in a figurative sense. What does he mean by that? Well, God had commanded Abraham to offer up Isaac, his only begotten son. And it says, and you can go back to Genesis and read it, it says that when Abraham received that command from God, he set out immediately. I mean, he didn't wait. 
He didn't argue with God. He set out immediately in obedience the next morning, very early in fact. He took Isaac and a couple servants, and in obedience to God's command, he headed out. And he headed out for three days. It was a three-day trip. And for Isaac, or excuse me, for Abraham, Isaac was as good as dead. Why? Because Abraham knew he was going to obey God. Isaac was dead to Abraham from that point on. Well, when they get to Mount Moriah, Abraham tells his two servants, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go up yonder. And it says, we will come back to you. Interesting. Well, Abraham's trust in God's promise was so strong that in verse 19 here, it tells us that Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. So, I mean, Abraham's faith is like, God, I I don't understand how you're going to do it. You're going to kill the only opportunity I have to have a descendant, but maybe you're going to raise him from the dead. I mean, you can do that. And so that was the faith of Abraham. You know, Abraham offering up his only begotten son, Isaac, on Mount uh, Moriah, it was not only a test of Abraham's faith in God's promises, but it was also a prophetic picture of what would occur on that same exact spot 2,000 years later. I don't know how many of you read any of Chuck Missler's books, but he's got a book called Cosmic Codes, and in it he has uh, a section where he explains, and he's got a topographical map where he shows Mount Moriah where Abraham offered Isaac, and interestingly enough, later on that spot became known as Golgotha, where Jesus Christ was offered up, where God offered up his only begotten son. And what was fascinating to me, and I don't get into, you know, I, I, I don't know, but it was interesting because in the book he mentions that that spot on Mount Moriah is 777 feet above sea level. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. But So for three days, Abraham's only begotten son was dead in a figurative sense. And as they're climbing Mount Moriah, and you guys probably went to Sunday school, so you know the story. Isaac asks his father, hey, dad, we've got fire. We've got a knife. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says this, and I like the King James version of it. But in Genesis 22, verse 8, Abraham said, my son... God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So so they both went of them together. You know, by the way, and I grew up in the age of flannel graphs, and so some of you might remember flannel graphs in Sunday school. How many of you remember flannel graphs? There's a few of us moldy oldies out here. Um, Well, you know, those flannel graphs are a little bit deceiving because whenever they had the story of Abraham Ising offering Isaac on the altar, there's this picture of this old man Isaac or Abraham that looks like you know God basically, gray hair, uh, and and you have this young boy, this young lad that's maybe like ten years old or so, a preteen who's being bound and put on the altar. But you know what? There are many people that believe. In fact, many scholars believe that Isaac was actually in his late twenties, possibly even thirty years old when he was offered up on the, on the altar there, which means that Abraham probably didn't pick up his son, which means that Isaac probably willingly went up on the altar. What, what a beautiful picture of God's only begotten son who willingly offered himself for our sins, who willingly went on a cross to die for you and I. In the story here of Abraham and Isaac, we see a hidden code, a hidden picture of the coming Savior who would give his life as a sacrifice for mankind's sin and rebellion. And Abraham lived out his faith here, believing that God could resurrect even the dead. And I don't know if you're facing a situation today where it feels like all hope is lost. Whatever it is, something it's dead to you. Well, you know what? With God, nothing's impossible. You have a dead relationship, a dead marriage. You have a dead whatever. Your future looks dead. God, trust God, because God is faithful. And he can bring back to life what you think is dead. Let's continue on here, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And when I was reading that, and study, that just jumped out at me. It's like, wait a minute, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob? Do you guys remember the story? Isaac was deceived into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. So what do you mean? by How did Isaac bless by faith? It just didn't make sense. So I had to dig into there a little bit. Well, if you recall the story of Isaac, 
uh, giving the blessing to Jacob and, and Esau, like I said, Isaac was tricked into blessing Jacob. Remember, and, and you have to kind of go back, and it's, it's back in Genesis. Genesis is a great book. I encourage you to read it. But uh, while Rebekah was pregnant, before Jacob and Esau were born, she had some, you know, I, you know when uh, one of our babies, I don't remember which one it was, I remember at night, my wife would lay down at night, and it looked like the baby was doing somersaults. I mean, you could just see her stomach moving, and it was just like, wow, what is that baby doing? Of course, it didn't feel too good for my wife. She'd get nauseous from it, but it was kind of cool to watch, you know, and, and uh, for me anyways, I don't think she thought it was that cool. But um, Well, Rebecca had an incident like this, and she had twins in her womb, and they were doing you know, gymnastics in there, and she was really concerned about it, so she sought the Lord about it. And in Genesis twenty five twenty three, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And get this, and the older shall serve the younger. That was before Jacob and Esau were even born. God had told Jacob, hey, the young, or Isaac, excuse me, the younger is going to serve the older. So, so Jacob knew this. Or I keep saying Jacob. Isaac knew this. Isaac knew God's promise to bless Jacob before Jacob and Esau were even born. Well, the boys were born. And uh, the Bible tells us Jacob loved Esau more than Jacob. Why? Not only because Esau was the firstborn, but Esau was an outdoorsman. Man, he was a hunter. He was a man's man. He just, you know, he's like Grizzly Adams, basically. Jacob, however, was a homebody. Man, he preferred to hang out at the tent. He probably watched cooking shows with his mom. He was more of a mama's boy. Esau was more of a man's man. And so it says that uh, Isaac loved Jacob more than Esau. You know, I, I read that and it kind of breaks my heart because, you know, as a parent, you never want to put one child over the other. And sometimes that happens, and maybe you grew up where you had a sibling that was loved more than you or you felt like they were loved more than you. That could be a tough thing. Well, anyways, that was Isaac did. He, he loved Jacob more than Esau. Well, at one point, Esau came home. And again, you guys know these stories. But at one point, Esau came home from the field, and he was famished. And his brother, Jacob, man, is trying out one of those chef cooking show dishes, you know, some new thing, and it's a stew, and it looked really good. And Esau's like, man, I am so hungry, I'm going to die. Give me some of that food. And uh, Jacob said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You sell me your birthright, and I'll give you this pot of stew. And Esau, the Bible says, he despised his birthright. Why? Because he went to satisfy his flesh. And so he exchanged the birthright. Well, that was at some point in their, in their growing up, their years. Well, it came to the time when Isaac was old and the time when he knew that he was going to die soon. And he wanted to pronounce a blessing on his sons, but he wanted to bless Esau. And so he told Esau, go out, cook some food. Or, I mean, go out, catch, catch some venison. He was a deer hunter, apparently. And bring it back, cook it for me, and, uh, and then I want to bless you. And Rebecca, of course, was in the other room. She heard it. And uh, when Esau took off, she told Jacob, hey, go out. Uh, don't even go out. We're going we're gonna to disguise you and, you know, put on wool. You'll look just like Esau. You'll smell like him. I'll cook some food just like Dad likes. And, and uh, anyway, so they both concocted a plan to trick Isaac into thinking he was blessing Esau when, in fact, he was blessing Jacob. And the plan worked. Listen to the part of the blessing that Isaac thought he was pronouncing on Esau. Genesis 27, 29, it says, Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. That was exactly opposite of what God had said. Isaac was trying to circumvent God's will. He was, trying to, he was trying to manipulate God into blessing whom he wanted to bless, rather on whom God said, who I am going to bless. Well, when Isaac realized, you know, because he blessed Jacob, thinking he was blessing Esau, Esau let, or I, excuse me, Jacob left the room. And it says, no sooner had he left that Esau came in 
with his venison. His, and he said, Dad, here I am. And, and, and it says that Isaac, when he realized he had been tricked, he trembled exceedingly. I think at that point he realized that he had tried to force God's hand and God would not allow the blessing to go to Esau. Now that does not excuse deceitfulness. It doesn't excuse lying. You know, it's not, a, it's not a cover for that. But God took that situation, and Isaac was trying to circumvent God's will, and God didn't let it happen. And so Isaac realized, I think, at that point, that he couldn't force God to do anything. And at that point, he confirmed to Esau that God had indeed blessed Jacob. And then Isaac gave a different blessing to Esau. And I think it was then that Isaac, by faith, confirmed God's blessing on Jacob and confirmed by faith what God had promised long ago concerning Esau. This is the faith that realizes, man, God, uh, God's promises can't be thwarted or manipulated by others, not even by our own efforts. I think it's a realization that God is sovereign over the affairs of man. You know what it says in Proverbs? 1921, it says, There are many plans in a man's heart, nevertheless the Lord's counsel. That will stand. You might be trying to go that way, and God wants you to go that way. He'll get you over there eventually. You can go the hard way, kicking and screaming, or you can go the easy way in obedience. Well, verse 21, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So now we get to Jacob's life. And at the end of his life, Jacob calls Joseph to his bedside to pronounce a blessing on Joseph. And the Bible says his eyes were dim. He couldn't see very well. And Joseph brought his two sons that, you know, he had lived in in Egypt, became uh, like second to Pharaoh, basically, in Egypt. And he had a couple sons born while he was there. And he brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, to Jacob. And uh, Jacob says, well, who are these? And he said, well, these are my two sons. And, uh, and so Jacob proceeds to pronounce a blessing on Joseph's sons. Now, Reuben, you know, Jacob had 12 sons. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob's sons. But Jacob gave a double blessing or a double portion to Joseph. And, what he, and the way he did it, he told Joseph that his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as regards to the inheritance, they would be counted along with his other two sons, along with his, his uh, other 11 sons. And so Joseph, through his sons, received a double portion of Jacob's inheritance. Anyways, Jacob brought, uh, or excuse me, Joseph brought his two sons near so that Jacob could pronounce a blessing on him. And Manasseh, was Joseph's oldest, his firstborn. And uh, Ephraim was, this, was the next one, was the younger one. And so the way Joseph positioned them was so that, so that Jacob could put his right hand and bless the firstborn, uh, and then he could put his left hand on, on, on uh, Ephraim. Well, it says that his eyes were dim, Jacob's eyes were dim, but he crossed his hands he put his right hand on Ephraim and he put his left hand on Manasseh and he proceeded to start to bless Ephraim. And uh, Joseph, when he realized what was going on, he tried to correct his father's mistake, tried to move his hands like, Dad, you got the wrong, you got the wrong kids, basically. And it says in Genesis 48, verse 19, but his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And then he pronounces a blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, it's interesting. You you go through history, and Ephraim's tribe was larger than Manasseh. Ephraim's standard in the book of Numbers for the tribes when they went out in procession, their standard was placed ahead of Manasseh's. the great leader of Israel, Joshua, was of the tribe of Ephraim. And later on, when the northern and the southern kingdoms separated, uh, the northern kingdom, which comprised ten, of, ten tribes of Israel, became known as Ephraim, uh, while Judah was designated as the southern kingdom. And it says here that Jacob worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. That's an interesting thing. I looked it up, and according to Vincent's word studies, 
uh, that staff in the Hebrew can also mean bed, and, and this is how they explain it. It says, the meaning is that Jacob, having been sitting during the conversation, laid down when it, when it was finished, probably overcome by weakness, and breathing a prayer as he fell back on his pillow. So, I just, you know, I, I have this picture of Jacob blessing Joseph. He's an old guy. He's, he's doing all that he can. And, uh, you know, before he blessed uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, he was talking to Joseph. And, and he told Joseph, he said, you know, I thought I would not see your face. Because you remember Joseph was just a young, young guy, maybe a teenager, when his brothers, you know, sold him into slavery into Egypt. And, and for all those years, they had told Jacob that, he, that Joseph had been killed by wild beasts. So Joseph, or Jacob, all these years thought his son was dead. And so he said, I had thought I would never see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. And I think, I think Jacob was just overwhelmed with God's goodness and God's grace. Part of the blessing, I want you to listen to this. In Genesis 48, verse 15, this is the blessing uh, that Jacob gave. It says, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob, as he's, worship, as he's pronouncing this blessing, he says, God who has fed me all long to this day. I mean, Jacob, you, you read the story of Jacob and how God provided for him and God blessed him. And he says, the angel has redeemed me from all evil. You know, I, I love this about the Old Testament saints. They were normal people like you and I. Man, they, they had their flaws like we do. And the Bible this is what tells me the Bible is true. It doesn't hide their flaws. It reveals them to us. Why? So that we can take courage. So that we can learn from their mistakes. So that we can be encouraged in our faith. And, and Jacob, you know, he started out as quite the huckster. He was Jacob, the, the, the supplanter. But God transformed Jacob, the supplanter, and changed his name to Israel, which means led by God. And God has God can change people's lives and he does it all the time. And so I think that's how Jacob was just worshiping the Lord there. Well, now we move on to Joseph, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now, at the time that Joseph was still living, the Hebrews, they were all living in Egypt as well. But man, they were being treated pretty well. Because, I mean, their brother, their, their, their relative was second to Pharaoh. And so during that time, Joseph, he reminded the children of Israel of God's promise to Abraham that after 400 years they would return to Canaan. I mean, Joseph had everything there in, in Egypt, but he wanted his brothers and sisters, his family, to remember, hey, remember God's promise. There's a better place that he's promised for us. And so he tells them, he's so confident of God's promise that he instructed the children of Israel, hey, when I die, and when you go, not if, but when you go back to Canaan, I want you to take my bones with me. Don't even bury them. So you can imagine, for 400 years, Joseph's bones probably sat in a sarcophagus. And probably kids walking by, hey, Dad, why do we have this box here? Well, that's Joseph's bones. And we're not going to bury him because one day we're going back to that promised land and we're supposed to take his bones with us. That's faith. Verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn, firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. 
Moses from the very beginning of his childhood. He, he, he was basically, he survived his childhood by, because of the faith of his parents. They saw something special in Moses. And because they trusted God more than they feared the Egyptians, they hid Moses and kept him alive. It says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, rather uh, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. You know, in all likelihood, excuse me, in all likelihood, Moses, being the adopted son of Pharaoh, he was in line to take over some form of leadership in Egypt. I don't know if he would have been next in line for Pharaoh, but he was in a, in a position of authority, a position where he was in line to become one of the great leaders in Egypt. And yet, Moses chose God's path for his life instead of Pharaoh's path because he looked to the promise. You know, life is a series of choices. That's all life is. Life is a bunch of choices for each one of us. And God gives you and I the freedom to make our choices. But there's always consequences with our choices. There's always, there's always something to be paid for our choices. And Moses made the choice to identify with his fellow Hebrews. But that choice had a consequence. And it led to suffering afflictions. But you see, Moses looked beyond the fleeting pleasure that sin brings, and he looked to the reward of choosing God's path for his life. It says that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. You know, when Moses obeyed God, remember when God called him at the burning bush and said, I, I want you to set my people free? And Moses chose to obey God in setting his, his people free. He really did esteem the reproach of Christ. He really took on the reproach of Christ there in a sense. Because he suffered not only persecution from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the king of the known world at that time, but he also suffered from his own people that he came to deliver. In that sense, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. You know, Jesus not only suffered persecution from the God of this age, Satan, but he also suffered persecution from his own people whom he came to deliver. It says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Think about this. You know, and I don't, I probably shouldn't watch the show, but I like watching that celebrity apprentice every once in a while, you know, Donald Trump, the Donald. Uh, you know, it seems like a real powerful guy, and everybody kind of cowers around him and everything. And he's not the most powerful person around, but he's, he's got some, some power. But Pharaoh was the most powerful man alive on the planet at this time of this, of the story of Moses. There was no one more powerful on the planet than Pharaoh. And it's not good to get the most powerful man on the planet angry with you. Why? Because he has power to make your life miserable. I mean, he, he could pull any strings to make your life very, very miserable. But Moses didn't fear Pharaoh. Moses saw the one who is all-powerful, the king of kings, who is invisible. And he was seeing God with the heart of faith. And, and doing that enabled Moses to not fear Pharaoh's wrath. You know, sometimes I think we can get overwhelmed with things that seem so powerful in this world when we just need to see who's sitting on the throne. And we, we, need, to, we need to see with our eyes of faith that God is in control. God's on the throne. What can man do to me? It says, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. You know, it takes a lot of faith to believe that the shed blood of an innocent lamb spread on a doorpost is going to allow an angel of death to pass over the house. But Moses believed God. You know, there's an interesting story, just a little side story. When the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness, and well, that's a whole other Bible study, it's, it's, but remember when they were, they were disobeying God, and so God sent snakes into the, into the camp to start, and they were deadly snakes, and they were biting 
children of Israel, and they're, they're dropping. They're just dying left and right. And Moses cries out to God, and God tells Moses to take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and everyone that looks to the serpent would be healed. Can you imagine being one of those guys? And Moses says, you just look at, the, look at that serpent on the pole, and you'll be healed. It's like, yeah. I mean, just looking at a serpent on a pole is going to heal me. But that's exactly what it took. And, of course, that was a picture of Jesus Christ who became sin for us, sitting on a tree. And you and I look to him by faith, and we're healed from our sins. We're forgiven of our sins when we look to him. Well, it takes faith to believe that you and I are, are saved from our sins by just repenting of our sins and putting our trust in Christ Jesus. But that is how we're saved, through faith in Christ. Well, Moses believed God and led his people in observing the Passover. Of course, the Bible says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. It says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Now, I'm a product of Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. I hate that. But I, you know, every time I read these stories, I think of Charlton Heston. You know, and he made a great Moses, but I always think of him standing there by the Red Sea and, you know, the wind's blowing his hair back and, you know, he holds the, he holds the staff out and the waters. You know, I always try to wonder, how did the waters part? And there's different, I've read different things about how it happened and stuff, but I always think of the Ten Commandments movie and there's this wall of water, you know, just, you know, and, uh, and Moses says, you know, they, they just pass through there. That would have taken a lot of faith because if you understand the law of physics, I mean, nothing makes sense. You know, you're looking at this, well, I don't know if it was a wall of water, but, you know, nothing makes sense. You're walking on dry land between water that once was there, now it's not. That would have been, that would have taken a step of faith. And yet, because of their faith, they were able to pass through the Red Sea. You know, the Egyptians tried the same thing. They didn't have faith. You know what they had? Raw courage. They had boldness. We're going to get those guys. They're making it through. We're going to make it through. There was no faith on their part. It was basically, we're getting them. It was pride. And, of course, they didn't make it through. Because you and I are only going to pass through by faith, not by pride, not by courage, not by boldness. So the children of Israel passed through by faith, but the Egyptians didn't. They tried a different way, and they drowned. Verse 30 now, we move on. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. You know, there was nothing that the children of Israel were doing. There was nothing in the use of the trumpets or circling the city that would explain the walls of Jericho coming down. By the way, I don't know how many of you have ever been to Israel, but if you go to Israel, get a chance, go down to Jericho, because you can actually go where the walls were. You can kind of see these mounds, and they said, this is where the, these are where the walls are. Interesting. Well, the children of Israel, can you imagine circling Jericho for seven days? They were probably ridiculed by the inhabitants of Jericho, and yet they patiently persisted for seven days. And on the seventh day, it wasn't the blowing of the trumpets that brought the wall down. It was the faith of the children of Israel that took those walls down. Faith in what God would do. Verse 31, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. The harlot Rahab, I think the fact they mentioned the harlot Rahab is mentioned here in Hebrews to illustrate that someone who is even someone who is the farthest from faith or farthest from God or farthest from Christ can be saved through faith. I mean, what a, what a beautiful picture of redemption, of salvation. Not only was Rahab a Canaanite, right? She was a Gentile. Not only was she a Canaanite, she was an inhabitant of the city that God had just said, I'm, we're gonna, I'm going to destroy that city because of their wickedness. Not only was she a Canaanite, not only was she an inhabitant of Jericho, but she was from the wrong sides of the track in Jericho. Man, she was a prostitute. I mean, that's like the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. But Rahab put her faith in God of Israel, and her faith was evident. It was, it was lived out by her hiding the spies of Israel and sending them away safely. And as they're leaving, she says, Hey, give me an oath that you're not going to destroy, destroy me and my household. And the spies said, well, we're coming back, as you know. And if you hang a scarlet cord out your window, 
when we come back and we see that scarlet cord, whoever's inside that house will be spared. Of course, that scarlet thread, that scarlet cord, what a beautiful picture of Christ's blood. There's a, there's a scarlet cord. Uh, one thing I love going through the Old Testament is looking at the pictures of Jesus Christ and all the different stories because there's a scarlet thread that runs through every one of those stories pointing to Jesus. Well, not only was Rahab physically spared, God redeemed and restored her. Man, God restores people. It's a beautiful thing. A guy later on by the name of Salmon, which probably doesn't mean anything to us, but he marries Rahab. And they have a son named Boaz. Well, Boaz marries Ruth. Maybe you know the story of Ruth. They have a son named Obed. Obed marries someone. The Bible doesn't tell us who, but they have a son named Jesse. And Jesse is King David's father. What a beautiful picture of redemption. God can take the life that's the furthest away from him. He can transform it and he can use it for his purposes and for his glory. Man, there's hope for every one of us here. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. I'm going to stop right there. I want to mention these guys, even though they, he said time will fail. I think we have a little bit of time. I'll squeeze it in <laughs> to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. There's one thing. These guys, they were all basically raised up by God to deliver the children of Israel uh, from their enemies during the time after Joshua had died. Their, their stories are in the book of Judges. They were known as the Judges of Israel, most of them. These guys had one thing in common. Through weakness... They became strong and became valiant in battle and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Take Gideon, for example. Gideon here, at the time when he was around, he was put in charge of protecting a wheat harvest for the children of Israel. What they would do is they would, they would harvest their wheat and then at the threshing floors and they would hide the wheat because the Midianites, they had sent in marauding bands every night and they would, they would pillage whatever, was, whatever they had harvested, the Midianites would take. And so they set this guy Gideon to hide the, they hid the wheat and then they wanted him to stand watch. And as he's standing watch in Judges 6.12, it says an angel of the Lord visited him. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, it says, and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. You know what Gideon's response was? He probably was like, there's somebody standing behind me. I mean, who are you talking to? Gideon's response here, listen to this hero of our faith, what he said in verse 13 of Judges 6. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. That doesn't sound like a hero of the faith. And yet he's listed here in Hebrews. Well, the story continues. In verse 14 of Judges 6, it says, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And so like many others in the Bible... And like so many of us, we don't start out heroes of faith. But you know what? God's patient. God sees you and I, not as we are today. He says, sees us as how we will be, as he's doing that work in us. And, you know, Gideon was a guy who was always second-guessing God. He was always asking, asking for a fleece. You know, God, prove this, prove this, prove this. And God was patient, and God proved himself to Gideon. And God worked in the life of Gideon, and out of, out of weakness, he did become strong. He became one of the mighty deliverers in Israel. Barak, he's another guy. He's an interesting guy. He led an army of 10,000 soldiers against Jabin, king of Canaan's army. Now, when I think of somebody who's leading 10,000 soldiers, I think of someone who's, yeah, I mean, a, a warrior, right? I mean, I think of somebody who's a great leader. I mean, they wouldn't ask me to lead 10,000 people, right? 
I leave, what, 50 people here? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not given that task. Because, well, we won't go there. But anyways, he led an army of 10,000 soldiers against Jabin, king of Canaan's army. And Canaan, uh, Jabin's army also included heavy weaponry, advanced heavy weaponry of their day. <laughs> they had 900 iron chariots. And in that day, that was like having MIG, you know, jets or whatever you want to call it. That was anti-tank weapons, whatever. They, they had the heavy artillery. Well, under his general, Sisera, Jabin had harshly oppressed the children of Israel for 20 years. And again, Barak sounds like a pretty tough guy to take an army like that or take on an army like that and be a leader of 10,000 soldiers. But you know how the story started? There was a woman named Deborah. And she was a prophetess in Israel. And she was a, she was a godly woman. And she was a, a brave woman. And she prophesied to Barak that God was sending him and 10,000 men to fight Sisera and that God would give them into his hands. And here's the hero of our faith's response. Judges 4, verse 8. And Barak said to her, If you go with me, <laughs> then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I ain't going. So her response to him, <laughs> I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak Kadesh. Well, God did give the army of Jabin into the hands of Barak and Deborah, but there was a young girl named Jael who killed Sisera with a tent spike as he slept in her tent. Now, if anyone, if you ever meet a girl that says, Jay, you know, her name is Jael, and she goes, hey, we're going camping, you want to come along? Stay away. I have a granddaughter named Jael, and I won't go camping with her. <laughs> Just kidding. But here's a guy, he didn't start out as a very brave person, but God did a work in his life, and he's listed here in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Samson, we all know the story of Samson, right? This is the strength of Samson. This guy had supernatural strength. He was called by God from the womb to be Israel's deliverer. And that guy just lived to satisfy his flesh. He had all the blessings. He had all the potential. And he blew it living after the flesh. And he did that his entire life, basically. Oh, He had some battles. He did fight some Philistines. But he was one who was ruled by his flesh. And at the end of his life, because of his own foolishness, he was made weak. And the, the Philistines gouged out his eyes, and they tethered him to a pole in a prison and made him just grind wheat, just walking around grinding wheat. Well, the Philistines had a great party in their temple, and they called for Samson. They basically wanted to make sport of him. They wanted him to perform before them, and, you know, rejoice over this mighty man. And now, he's, now he was this weak, blind, prison wheat grinder. And when he was brought before them, he prayed to God to give him his strength once more. And by faith, he asked this young boy who had led him in there, he says, hey, let me feel the, the, the pillars of this temple. And, and the, led, the boy led him over there, put his hands on the, on the pillars, and, and Samson prayed and cried out. And you guys know the story. By, by faith, God gave him the strength once more, and he ended up destroying that temple. And he died in that battle. But he killed more Philistines in that one battle by faith than he did all his life going after the flesh. These guys may not have started out well, but through faith they finished well. And I hope that encourages you because sometimes I'm not the big, big man of faith that I should be. But God's patient with each one of us. He's doing a work in us. Jephthah, another interesting guy. One of Israel's judges, you can read his story in Judges 11. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him to defeat the Ammonites, and, and God used him in many ways uh, to fight against uh, Israel's enemies. Well, before Jephthah left for one of, the, one of his last battles, anyways, he made a vow, and he made a pledge to the Lord that if the Lord granted him victory, the first thing that he saw returning from his battle, he was going to offer it as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. And God did give him a victory. And as he was returning from the victory, it says his daughter, his only daughter, ran out to greet him. I always cry because I only got one daughter too. <laughs> but but he, you know, here's his daughter. And man, the joy of victory all of a sudden became grief. Like, what have you done? He's probably saying to himself, what have I done? He made this vow. 
and he kept his vow no matter how painful it was. Now, I, I, I disagree with some of, the, some of the commentaries think that he actually did offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. I don't, I don't think so. What I think happened was his daughter was devoted to the Lord and never married, which for a Jewish father, and that was his only daughter, that's, that was a pretty bad thing because everybody wanted to have children. I, know there's, I don't think there's a grandparent here in this room that doesn't want to have grandchildren. Grandparents have grandchildren. There's, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree, whatever. You know, when you, you think about Jephthah, I like what F.B. Meyer says about Jephthah. He says, before you judge him, ask whether you would be willing for your dearest to become a missionary in a heathen land. Have you ever yielded your all to the man of Calvary? Do you love him better than the best? You would not carry out your vow as probably Jephthah did, but are you as absolute in your dedication? So that was the faith of Jephthah. Man, he followed through in his commitment. There's, you know, that's one thing that's missing in this society, in this world, people don't follow through with their commitments. Jephthah did, and even to the point of pain. It hurt him. But he, he made that vow, right or wrong. He, probably, he shouldn't have made that vow, but he did. But he stayed faithful. And he's listed here in this Hebrews Hall of Faith. Well, the writer also mentions David and Samuel and the prophets. Uh, those who stopped the mouths of lions, probably referring at least to Daniel in the lion's den. Women who received their dead, raised to life again, probably referring to the ministry or the faith of the prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Now, if the writer had stopped here, man, that would have been an excellent chapter, right? If the writer had just stopped and finished chapter 11 there, it'd be like, cool, that's it, man. Faith, we need faith to conquer our enemies. But right at the start, or right at the end of verse 35, he starts saying something that, to me, it's a little disturbing. Maybe it is to you. He says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. You see, these people also had faith. These people were also mentioned in the hall of faith. Some saw victories through faith in their lives, others did not experience it in their lives on earth, and yet... They had faith. They're no, they were no less faithful. They were no less people of faith than the ones in the beginning of the chapter. Zechariah, we know, was stoned to death. Tradition has it that Isaiah was sawn in two. When we went through the book of Jeremiah, remember he kept getting thrown into prison and chains, and he suffered in his ministry. It says they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. These men and women who suffered so terribly, the Bible says, man, the world wasn't even worthy of them. You know, I can't help but think about our brothers and our sisters in places like North Korea right now. People who love Jesus. People are, they're just being, you know, they're, they're, I don't think there's a real big prosperity gospel over there. You know, I, I honestly don't believe it. And I'm not mocking people that believe in that, but I, I'm just saying I don't think there's that big of a thing there because these people are suffering. They're dying for their faith. They have everything stripped from them. But they're no less spiritual than you and I. They're no less faithful than you and I. I can't help but the people that are around places where ISIS is now in control. Brothers and sisters, man, they're just being slaughtered because they're believers. And they're no less faithful than you and I. They're no less spiritual than you and I here. We want the kind of faith that brings us triumph and victory over the enemy. And I think it's great, and we should be praying for that, and we should have that kind of faith. But what we really need is the quality of faith that endures, no matter what. No matter what God brings our way. Faith that's able to stand and withstand the trials and the temptations and the things that happen regardless of the outcome in this life. God may not choose to deliver you from your hardship. He may not. Do you still love him? Can you still trust him? Is he still faithful? Job said this, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Wow. 
I wonder if we could say that. We need the kind of faith that endures. The kind of faith that sees him who is invisible when everything we visibly see stands in opposition. The kind of faith that looks forward to our heavenly home. You know, if God chooses to bless you and I in this earth, if he chooses to heal you, if he chooses to to give you, you know, to bless you financially or to bless you materially or however he chooses to do you, you know, anything that you receive as a blessing is more than what you deserve. Anything that you receive in this life is more than what you deserve to begin with. If God were to strip away every single thing that we have, our health, our families, our finances, everything, we still have more than what we deserve because we have eternal life. And, you know, and I, I go through the doldrums once in a while, and I get down and I start thinking, woe is me, you know, I, you know, I don't have the newest car, you know, stuff like that, you know. But, you know, as believers, we should be the most joyful people on the face of this planet because we have been given eternal life. Yeah. And anything that's stripped away from us, man, we still don't deserve anything, any of that anyways. God in his grace has provided, provided us salvation. And anything that he gives on top of that, man, in this life, man, it's just, it's just like icing on the cake. It's just, so if God's blessed you with your health, if God's blessed you with a job, if God's blessed you with a, a wonderful family, praise God. Be thankful. Because you don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. Verse 39. All of these, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now, perfect means complete in this context. And these men and women of the Old Testament, they obtained a good testimony through faith, but they didn't receive the promise. They looked forward to the heavenly city. They looked forward to the coming of the Messiah who would complete that work of salvation. They looked forward from that side of the cross, from before the cross. They looked forward to the sacrifice, to being made complete by Jesus' sacrifice. You and I, were on the other side. We're from the other side looking at what Jesus Christ has already done. We're both, we're, we're both looking in the same place. They're looking, they were looking forward. We're looking back. But it all points to Jesus and the cross. And you and I, we should have even more reason to hold on to our faith than these saints that, that the Hebrew writer was writing to and the people before. Actually, the people before. We should even have more faith or reason to hold on to our faith because, man, we've already seen so much of God's promises fulfilled. We're just waiting for New Jerusalem. Man. We're waiting for his return for his church. You know, he's fulfilled so much already.